0: You are listening to the 2022 Air and Space Power Conference brought to you by the Royal Australian Air Force's Air and Space Power Centre. In this presentation, Dr. Brenton Smith contributes with their discussion on formation flying of the M2 spacecraft. We join the presentation as it is introduced to the conference attendees. Yes, so I'm uh, Murray Simons and uh, I have the privilege of being the moderator for the remaining sessions in this stream. Conscious of time, so we're gonna keep moving. Uh, we will be taking questions at the end, um, but I'm just conscious that we need to keep our speed up. So, um, Brenton Smith is our next presenter, as you know from the program, and he is the Chief Technology Officer from uh, Nominal. And his particular interest is in the formation flying of the M2, and uh, the focus is on the stabilization of the formation. So, without further ado, I'll invite uh, Brenton to come to the uh the stage? Um, so, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, so, yeah, my name is Brenton Smith. I am the Chief Technology Officer of Nominal Systems, but I've also had the great privilege over the last 12 months of being a research associate at UNSW Canberra, uh, where I was looking after formation flying aspects of the M2 mission that Russ just described. Um, Specifically, I had uh, a great experience doing a lot of the mission planning for this separation maneuver, and that's what I really want to focus on today. Um, because it's a good example of how these types of experiences in, in sort of pushing you know, the cutting edge in space can really uh, bring to light new techniques uh, within the industry um, through the R&D efforts that uh, stem from those activities. So I'll give a bit of a quick introduction to the M2 again. So it's been quoted uh, as Australia's most complex CubeSat yet. Um, In fact, there's two of them because it's a formation flying mission. Uh, So essentially, M2 is a 2 by 12 U CubeSat mission. Um, It was launched on Rocket Labs in March 2021. Um, And part of uh, its purpose was to demonstrate technology which includes the formation flying, which I'll talk more about. So I guess uh, before we continue getting into the nitty gritty, I'd like to just, I guess, give a bit, bit of a high level overview of how the formation sort of works, uh, just to give a bit more context. Um, so the two CubeSats, they're sort of the boxes, as you might expect from a CubeSat. Uh, have they've got a, quite a large solar array, which acts Uh, essentially a bit like a wing. So the main mechanism that we use to um, actuate the formation flying maneuvers is through aerodynamic drag. So we're essentially gliding the spacecraft um, together by changing their attitude and that changes the drag profile acting on each spacecraft. Um, And so essentially, um, yes, when the spacecraft are flying in formation, we can use that to actuate the formation flying maneuvers. But the spacecraft were actually launched conjoined. Um, So they were joined together, and that allowed us to contain them as we commissioned systems, um, which is a typical uh, activity for space missions. So um, uh, for a period of some months, they were conjoined together. Uh, Systems and subsystems were switched on, uh, and they were tested. And at some point, uh, we were ready to actually separate the spacecraft. And so it's this sort of separation that uh, my sort of research activities and mission planning focused on. So, um, and that's mainly because uh, the spacecraft was separated by a spring mechanism. So they're given a bit of an impulse, a kick apart. Um, but as space dynamics go, that initial kick, once, has happened will continue. It doesn't really dampen naturally. And so the question was, Okay, so we've got two spacecraft separating after this impulse kick apart. They need to be recommissioned, because prior to separation, we had to switch a lot of subsystems off. So while they're almost switched off and separating, we somehow need to contain them uh, as we're switching the spacecraft back on. And that's not a trivial problem to solve. And so I guess that was what we are really faced with. Um, And to give some context to that separation, uh, it was approximately eight kilometers per day that we were facing. So every day that elapsed, the spacecraft would be eight kilometers further apart. Um, And if that were to continue, they would just drift apart indefinitely, which is not ideal for a formation flying mission because we want to operate that coordinated formation. and to give a bit of context for what a formation means in space, um, as Russ indicated with that previous plot, uh, we're sort of talking you know, from one kilometer to 200 kilometers relative distance. Um, so the two spacecraft uh, orbit in the same uh, orbit, almost following the same trajectory. It's just one leads the other about the Earth. Um, and as I described, um, Yeah, the the spacecraft was switched off, so they had to be recommissioned, which was an extra challenge. Uh, So the technique we came up with with was actually a bit of a passive stabilization technique, um, where the spacecraft, when they were separated, were deliberately tumbled. Uh, That was to rotate the antennae away from each other to avoid entanglement. Uh, But it's also more of a a safer operating mode, because when, when spacecraft are tumbling, Um, At least some portion of the time, the solar panels should be facing the sun, for example. But that meant that we could deploy the solar panels on one spacecraft. Um, In this case, it was a spacecraft with a higher orbit, because as astrodynamics go, the spacecraft with the higher orbit orbits slower. It's got a a larger, semi-major axis. And that means uh, the other spacecraft will start to uh, pull away from it, and that's what's causing that divergence. But what we can do is if we can somehow decay the spacecraft to the higher orbit, if we can d- decay its orbit quicker, at some point the the height of the orbit or that semi-major axis will be the same. And that way um, that relative motion, that divergence will be nullified. And that's what we really wanted to do. And so as I mentioned before, the way we did it was to deploy solar panels on one spacecraft only. And this was the spacecraft the higher orbit. And with that extra drag, uh, it meant that that orbit would decay quicker and it would start to sort of nullify that relative motion. The beauty of this technique was that uh, we could deploy the solar panels and let the spacecraft just tumble. Um, and as they were tumbling, we could do that recommissioning of subsystems. And so uh, there was no constraint on us to have to wait until the subsystems were commissioned before we could start um, actively maneuvering. Um, so this gave us the, the benefit of being able to recommission the spacecraft in parallel to starting to stabilize the maneuver. So I mentioned a lot of the, the actual mission sequence that we followed for this passive stabilization technique. Um, so the The other part that I haven't mentioned yet was obviously at some point in the future, the heights of the orbits will be equal, which is um, about step five you can see um, in those images. And at that point, we want to reduce that differential drag. We want the drag on each spacecraft to be approximately the same. And so at that point, we deployed the panels on the other spacecraft. So they're experiencing approximately the same differential, the same drag with no differential drag. Um, and so, this was really the technique that we, we adopted. Um, we did some analysis, obviously, before we did this, um, and it sort of indicated that uh, given the variance of the delta V from that spring force, we were looking from anything between stabilizing the formation after the separation within uh, a range of 10 and a half days to 29 and a half days uh, with the, uh, a long track separation given by that delta U, um, ranging between sort of 24 kilometres to 175 kilometres. So yeah, so we we actually did this with them too. So the separation event occurred on the 10th of September last year. Um, And uh, the manoeuvre was complete. on the uh, 2nd of October. So it took 22 days at that point with the separation of 75 kilometers, which for context was sort of within the the range that we were expecting. Um, However, as space missions go, it didn't run as smoothly as we would have liked. As Russ sort of hinted before, we issued the command for the panels to be deployed at the end of the maneuver. It turns out that only some of the panels were deployed on the other spacecraft at that time. And so what we thought would be um, the point where we should cancel the maneuver, we're actually noticing that divergence was still occurring. And so um, from the 19th of October onwards, uh, we reissued the deployment commands and the rest of the solar panels were deployed. Um, And so we could do the maneuvering sort of normally from from that point. Um, So yeah, this was only meant to be a high-level overview. So, uh, that's the presentation I had for you today. I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. So My my question's a space-weather question. Mm -hmm. Russ said that that really blew things out of the water. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we do have access to space-weather data, but we didn't have the right enough of it, or did you not have access to it? Yeah. we, so we have access to space weather data. Uh, the challenge with uh, a lot of third-party data is the delay, because um, usually you find out about these things after they've happened, um, in which case the damage is done, so to speak. Um, so I think a lot of the research effort at UNSW Canberra is focusing on building that space weather expertise. So it can be a, a much quicker turnaround for reacting to such things. Um, uh, But the processes as well uh, need to evolve. So yes, uh, the data can come in when it does at the moment. Um, I think a lot of the processes in response to that can be optimized. Um, I think we have done that at UNSW Canberra. um, But I think for spacecraft operation generally, um, there's a lot of scope for setting up systems to react appropriately to such anomalies. So yeah. Thank you very much. Um, so we're talking about the formation flying of the satellite, so I'm curious if you can speak to you know what does that formation flying actually allow us to achieve? You know what are the benefits of formation flying? Yeah, great question. Um, so a lot of systems uh, are sort of evolving to be multi-agent systems, and spacecraft are no different. Um, for space specifically, uh, the benefit of multiple spacecraft are that you can distribute sensors across the multiple spacecraft. I think, for example, with M2, we have the ability to use um, some of our uh, radio RF observations to cue the trailing spacecraft to take imagery, um, so they're sort of working in a coordinated fashion, um, and that sort of scales up to other applications as well. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, QKD is another one that Russ mentioned. So it was. Uh, he had a concept image on his presentation, but it's actually just a quantum key experiment. Um, that's another um, good uh, example of where a formation can be beneficial because um, you can take advantage of the distributed nature of the two spacecraft, um, and then ultimately you get into the realm of constellations, which is gives you like uh, quite good um, revisit times and um, Earth coverage. So, um, yeah too easy we're probably out of time there unfortunately um it's always difficult for someone who's an expert in their field to compress everything (laughs) down to 10 minutes so uh, congratulations to all the speakers um if you have more questions i'm sure Brennan's happy to take them afterwards and if there are any more online we'll be able to facilitate that as well so once again thanks very much Thank thank you for being part of the air and space power centers 2022 air and space power conference which was proudly sponsored by principal sponsor Boeing, major sponsors L3 Harris, Rolls-Royce and Lockheed Martin. If you are looking to consume, contest or contribute to airspace power, please visit www.airpower.airforce.gov.au.